Keep your Bibles open there in Ephesians chapter 4, if you would. As one who is entrusted with uh, the really high and wonderful privilege of preaching God's inerrant and inspired and holy word week in and week out, let me tell you that I love it when the Bible so clearly and powerfully applies itself. Today is just such a day that the word of God itself is all application. It's all application for us. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, and we're going to spill over into chapter 5 just a little bit this morning. Here, beginning in verse 25, the Apostle Paul continues what he, uh, we looked at last Sunday from verses 17 to 24. Really, we, we gleaned the principles last week that we're going to apply this week. And Paul continues to paint a very moving word picture here of what new life in Jesus Christ looks and feels like for us as God's precious children and as fellow members of God's glorious church. If you walk away from today's message saying, I'm just not sure how to apply this to my life, then you have slept through today's message. The story is told of the famous 19th century English missionary to China, Reverend Hudson Taylor, you probably know. If you know any missionary, you know William Carey and Hudson Taylor's names. Well, apparently one Sunday while giving a truly insightful and impassioned sermon, missionary Hudson Taylor filled a glass of water and placed it on the table just in front of him as he spoke. And as he did so throughout the message, he would bang the table and bang the table again as he preached. And every time he struck the table, water would splash out of the glass. And then he said to his congregation, you will come up against trouble. And when you do, remember, only what's in you will spill out. Pretty powerful illustration. Well, friends, today provides for us some keen insights into the splashes of grace amid a world full of grit and trouble. In verses 25 to 32, in particular this morning of Ephesians 4, Paul is going to give us a set of five contrasting pictures. In one sense, he says, guys, do this, but don't do that. We understand that the Christian faith is not simply a list of do's and don'ts, but there are things that are clearly called for us to do and things we are clearly called not to do. This is a text where we can walk away and saying, this is a do list and this is a don't list. Here, these contrasting pictures pertain to new speech and to new attitudes and actions. As Christians, people should tell that we are Christians by what uh, trickles out of our lips and what happens through our hands and our lives as well. Paul gets at what is going on in a person either before he is saved and certainly what happens through a person upon his salvation. And really here we see the overflow of divine grace. This is not a a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of message that you have some capacity or some ability in and of yourself to do this text. You don't. You need Jesus Christ to come and invade your life, to take up residence and to cause you to do what the Bible says in front of us. Here we see the overflow of divine grace in a description of good works, go back to Ephesians 2.10, produced and provided by God by His Spirit. 
In other words, what must we put off and what must we put on as Jesus' disciples in the world today? So again, Paul provides for us five distinguishing marks, identifying characteristics of new life in Jesus. Let me give them to you here at the outset. We're going to walk our way through the text one after the next. That instead of lying, Christians are called to be people of integrity. People who practice and put on the truth. There are to be no lying lips among us. Instead of raging and warring, followers of Jesus Christ are committed here not to let the sun set on upsetting issues, but rather to be people who pursue peace and who practice self-control. Instead of stealing... True believers are to work hard, not only to provide for themselves or for their family, but to have something extra to share with others who may be in need. Fourth, instead of spewing ugly speech, God's children are rather to have grace-filled mouths. Not dirty mouths, rather mouths that build each other up rather than constantly tearing each other apart and down. And then lastly, instead of biting and devouring and fighting with each other, our new life in Christ is expected to be one that is characterized by Christ-like gentleness and forgiveness. Because God in Christ has forgiven us. Gospel doctrine is Ephesians 1 to 3. Gospel culture is Ephesians 4 through 6. 1 inevitably leads to the next. In many ways, though, and we'll come back to this uh, concluding portion, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, in a matter of weeks, it actually very beautifully summarizes what Paul begins in verse 25. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 beautifully summarizes or wraps up this description of the new life in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God. Who is truth? Who doesn't rage? Who builds up rather than tears down? Jesus does. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. We could label this message the walk of love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. By the way, there are various places in our Bibles where the chapter divisions aren't all that helpful. And I think this is one of them. Ephesians 5.1 actually should be read with the verses in front of it. But regardless, these five marks, and let me say them again, honesty, self-control, selflessness, a tongue that builds up rather than tears down, and a life of graciousness and forgiveness, each of these describe what Paul meant prior in Ephesians 4.24 when he said that believers in Jesus are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are new creation. And just as we were made to bear the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in Christ through the work of grace and the work of the gospel, we are now to reflect God in a redeemed way. And here he shows us what that looks like. It's sort of like what Paul says to Titus over in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Listen to these words from the scriptures. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation 
for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the, the blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That means things ought to be different once we come to faith in Jesus. And so, as we walk out of today's service, I want you to walk out with these questions, not weighing you down, but hopefully building you up. Questions like, am I characterized by what God approves and presents as good, pleasing, and desirable? Does my life line up with Ephesians 4.25 and following? Is this true of me? Or is the fruit of my confession contrary to the plain text of God's word? We ought to walk out saying either God forgive me or God thank you. Does the consistent pattern of my life really picture the new life of Christ and display accurately the power of his gospel? That's what I want us to wrestle with this morning. So mark number one, our first main point this morning is simply this, and they flow each and every one out of the text in front of us. So keep your Bibles open. Mark number one, our new life in Christ Jesus should be characterized by truthfulness, not falsehood. By truthfulness, not falsehood. Genuine Christianity is authentically and uncompromisingly truthful. In a world like ours, we need to be reminded of this point. Believers in Jesus are not to give a foothold to falsehood. We are to be people not only who know the truth, but who live truthfully. According to Paul, the very first thing we need to ask ourselves today is this, is my life and is my testimony before God and others truly true? Am I harboring deceit? Am I duplicitous in any way? Is there something misaligned in my, in my profession and practice? Is my life truly true? Now, it was Charles Spurgeon, the great Reformed Baptist preacher, who once said of the Puritan pastor John Bunyan, one of my favorite Puritans, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, why this man is a living Bible, he said, Spurgeon said of, of Bunyan. Prick him anywhere, anywhere, his blood is bibline. In other words, he bleeds Bible. The very essence of the Bible flows out of him. And friends, this could have been said of Paul as well. How do we know that? Well, throughout this text, Paul is not only going to press home application, he's going to remind us of Old Testament truth. Paul is building this picture on the basis of Old Testament texts. In fact, Ephesians 4.25, you may or may not know this or recognize it right out, it contains a direct allusion to the minor prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, where we read the following. Zechariah writes, These are the things that you shall do through the, through the Lord. He has this message. Speak the truth to one another. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4.25. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. 
Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things the Lord says, I hate. Again, the word of the Lord, Zechariah 8, 16 and 17. Now, Zechariah, you might remember, was a post-exilic prophet of Israel, which means he was prophesying to people who had gone through hard times, and they went through hard times for a big reason. He warned the people of God again and again, repeating, uh, repeating that they should not make the same colossal mistakes of the past, which led to great heartache at home and severe judgment from heaven. There was a reason why they had been exiled out of Israel. And lying and cheating were some of the big reasons why they had been spewed out of the promised land. Friends, the Bible does not mince words. God hates deceitfulness and falsehood. It is inconsistent, incompatible, and inconceivable that we might espouse to be people of the truth and live false lives. It just doesn't add up. Consider Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, where the Bible says, and you'll probably recognize this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Texts like that make me sober up, friends. The book of Proverbs again says in Proverbs 12, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who act faithfully are his delight. Folks, in other words, Paul says here that since we have been selected by God and saved by grace, we are created after the likeness of God. By the way, Titus 1, 2, a God who never lies. He never lies. In true righteousness and holiness. So then we must openly honestly and truthfully live before others, especially before others in the church. If we look more closely at the passage, we're going to discover, and I'm going to point them out for you this morning, that Paul not only reveals the sort of speech and actions that should reflect our holiness before God, but actually he also gives us several important theological justifications or reasons behind each of these characteristics. Verse 25 contains the first of them. It says, For we are members of each other. Why should we be people of the truth? Because we belong to one another. Look at verse 25 again. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor. You can look around. Each of you are neighbors one to the next. For we are members of one another. Now remember, the Bible says that the devil is a deceiver, and even the father of lies. When we lie, we are not acting like our father, we are acting like the father of the world, Satan. As followers of Christ, as children of God, we rather are to be people who speak truthfully. In fact, 1 Timothy 3.15 says we are members of the household of truth. And so because of the transformative nature and power of the gospel, that is because grace unites us both to God and to one another, we are commanded to be people who walk and deal in facts, 
not falsehood. We are commanded to be people, Christians, who trade in truth, not in lies. So are we truthful people? Let me ask you just a few application questions to this application point, in a sense. Do you deal honestly and transparently both inside the church and outside in your business practices? Are you often tempted to lie or to fudge the facts to make yourself look better at work, at church, at home? I think we all are tempted to do that from time to time, but that is not being truthful. It's wanting yourself to look better than you actually are. Are you open and transparent about your struggles with sin and your need for God's forgiveness? It was embarrassing, but Wednesday night, just the Spirit convicted me, and in our prayer time right up here, I just confessed a sin before our prayer meeting. Or do we hide those things, putting on that, that, uh, that plastic mask of perfection? Friends, let's be honest, none of us are perfect. And we need to confess our faults one to the next. Are you careful, especially in this age of social media, not to share disinformation and falsehoods online? All of these things go to our credibility as Christians. And so the summary of this first point may be stated this way. As followers of Jesus Christ, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life, we as Christians are called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with godly integrity and as people who are credible, trustworthy, and truthful at all times. When we say something, people should say, you know what, you can take that to the bank. He's a person, she's a person of integrity. Are we that kind of people? Well, Mark number two, Paul tells us that our new life in Christ should be characterized now by self-control and eagerness for peace rather than uncontrolled raging. Pastor Jerry, any driving illustrations for me this morning? Okay, I'm sorry, I don't want to embarrass you here. I said a few moments ago that Paul had the Bible on the brain, as he always did, when he sat there under house arrest writing the letter of Ephesians. And this particular passage, not only did Zechariah come by his mind, but also the book of Psalms came by his mind. And we know that because he quotes it here. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Well, that first phrase, be angry and do not sin, Paul didn't cook it up. He actually borrowed it from Psalm 4, verse 4. King David, a thousand years or so before Paul, had penned, be angry, Psalm 4, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Interesting. In addition to a truthful tongue, our new life in Christ ought to be characterized uh, to reflect the image of God by displaying self-control. And who doesn't have a little bit of problem, at least, with self-control? I think we all do. But also a peaceful spirit. We aren't cantankerous. We aren't uh, bullish. But rather, we're peaceful and gentle. Now, keep your finger there in Ephesians 4 and glance a few, verse, a few books back to Galatians. Actually, one book back. Galatians, Ephesians. One book back. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I love this text. I'm sure you know it well. Galatians 5, 16 and following. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. 
and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. They're almost groups of sin that Paul lists here. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who do these belong to Christ Jesus, who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What a great passage. The book of James has something for us here. James 1, 19 to 21. I, it says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every one of you be quick to hear, slow to speak. Boy, I need to hear that verse. And slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's something very interesting back in Ephesians 4 that I want you to notice. I think there are 13 imperatives in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. That, that's a lot. That's, that's a compressed package of commands to us as Christians. But in verses 26 and 27 alone, there are four imperatives. They are the following. Be angry. We're actually commanded to be angry talk about that in a moment. Be angry. Do not sin. So as you are being angry, what does that mean? Do not sin. That's the second imperative. Do not let the sun go down on your anger is a third imperative. And lastly, do not give the devil an opportunity is the fourth imperative in those two verses. Do you see that? Now, there's tension that we ought to feel. I, I can remember mom and dad, Dan, Danny, they call me Danny. Do not be angry. Do not be angry. And I feel this tension when I come to this text. I'm not supposed to be angry. It's actually ungodly to be angry. But actually, there's a godly anger. In fact, John Stott said very helpfully, there is a need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. Not on Twitter. I'll tell you that right now. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses God's anger, it should arouse ours also. The truth of the matter is, friends, we should be angry at the evil and injustices of our society. Against abortion. Against sexual abuse and scandals by people in positions of power. Especially people who call themselves Christian and are in power against the corrosion of morality and of marriage and other uh, things in our culture. We should be livid at that. But how do we express that anger matters? How we show our anger matters. Understand then, church, that Ephesians 4.26 is not a prohibition against anger. 
Rather, it is a prohibition against misdirected, selfishly motivated, self-righteous anger. That's what we aren't supposed to do. Simply stewing over things is devilish. It's not becoming of us as believers. Paul slips a second sound theological reason in this second commandment. The second command in verse 27, be angry, do not sin, do not, give an op- do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here's the theological reason, so that you don't give the devil an opportunity. You don't give the devil a window to devour you, to sidetrack you. I, Pastor Tony Merida said this so funny. He says, don't go to bed with unresolved conflict or else you will sleep with the devil. That's, that's a good point. I read of a little boy who said, righteous indignation is when you get really mad, but you don't use cuss words. (laughs) Not exactly, folks. See, Paul's divinely inspired point, I think, is actually twofold. On the one hand, he's saying, don't rage for rage's sake. Anybody else tired these days of how some people have to simply be angry about something all the time? Paul is basically telling us, don't rage for rage's sake. Chill out, Christian. Relax. He's on the throne. He's got it. Be patient, not pugnacious. Just go onto Twitter, and the loudest, meanest voices are that very often of Christian leaders and pastors. Shame on us. Shame on us. Simply raging against the latest thing that we should be afraid of. Perfect love casts out fear. If you're going to get angry about something, do something about it. Get involved. Don't just bloviate and pontificate about it. Be angry and do not sin. But secondly, Paul is saying, don't just not rage for rage's sake. Don't let things fester. Don't just let it linger there. Instead, we need to deal with the things that provoke us authentically to righteous anger. Maybe we struggle with this, especially so. Unchecked anger is the devil's playpen. Let me tell you that right now. Bitterness, mean-spiritedness is the residue and result of unbridled, unconfessed, unaddressed anger and dangerous resentment in our lives. We got to root it out. Don't let your anger simmer. Instead, sort it out in a timely fashion and in a truthful way. A couple application questions. Are you easily angered and quickly offended? Man, oh man. It's a dangerous question to ask to the church. We really need to be very slow to anger in the church. Do not be easily offended. Let me tell you right now, most often the motive of the person who's offended you is not to harm you. Most often we make it up in our minds. Do you sweat the small stuff? Don't sweat the small stuff. In fact, I love Proverbs 19:11, a person's wisdom yields patience, and it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Things will work out. You're not the center of the universe. Let it roll off your back. If you've been offended and you need to do something about it, don't tell your friend, tell the person who offended you. Go to your brother. Work it out in grace and with a heart to reconcile, and God will be pleased. 
Do you collect grievances like you do baseball cards? <laughs> Don't be a collector, a wrong keeper. Don't be that way. But rather, when you're offended, give it to God. Say, Lord, you take the collection. You're the one that's going to sort it out anyway. Give it on up to God. And I trust and I hope that you are patient with others, particularly with others who are family in the church. Do we have more patience for our neighbor or for our boss than we do for the person who sits next to us in the pew? We've got to be patient with each other. A summary point here before we move on is as people who follow a Savior who himself was silent before his own accusers, we should be people of an easy disposition. People who are angered for the right reasons and who deal with their anger in the right ways. Just jot down Romans 12, 18 to 21, and you can look it up later. It's a good good text. Third mark out of five, our new life in Christ should be characterized by hard work and by generosity towards others, not by taking what doesn't belong to us, not by stealing. Somebody has said the strongest argument for Christianity is Christians when they are drawing from the life of God. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians when they become exclusive, self-righteous, and complacent. Apparently, the ancient culture had a problem with kleptomania. Do you know what that is? Taking stuff that doesn't belong to you. Petty theft was a common practice in ancient Ephesus. And actually, Paul wanted the church to know that instead of stealing and instead of being thieves, Christians are to be honest, even model citizens who work hard and share with others. Something has happened to you. Keep your fingers off what doesn't belong to you. Someone said the stealer was to become now the giver. Now notice again the theological reason connected to this particular command. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that, purpose clause, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Why should we work hard? Because God is a generous God. We are to look like generous kids of God. The virtue of hard work and sharing with others in need is emphasized repeatedly throughout the New Testament. I think of Romans 12, 13, where Paul says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of others. I think of Galatians 6, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Do you bear any responsibility for the needs and aches of those who sit around you from Sunday to Sunday? I say we do. Paul himself certainly practiced what he preached to the church when it came to hard work and generosity. Just remember some of his example. We read of it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul says to the church, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul didn't just say, do what I say. No, he says, do what I do. Look at my example. This work ethic evidently was largely caught by the Thessalonian believers because Paul would later write in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and following, for now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers, to do this more and more. 
and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Maybe the summary statement here would be that as those who now belong to God by grace and through faith, our lives are to be characterized now by giving, not by taking. By service and selflessness, not by demanding and selfishness. We are now in Christ to be generous, not greedy. That's Paul, what Paul's saying. To these very same church leaders in Acts 20, Paul wrote this. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, I love this verse, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So brother and sister, do you bear a godly testimony at work and at school? Or are you suspected of cheating and stealing what doesn't belong to you? Let me ask you this, is there anything in your garage at home that belongs to your neighbor? And if so, what does that say about your faith? Are you a person who works hard and looks for the opportunity to share the fruit of your labor with others in need? Guys, this is how we should deal with this text. So, truth as opposed to falsehood, peace and self-control as opposed to anger and raging, a good work ethic and generous heart as opposed to sneakiness and stealing, and fourthly, a mouth that builds up rather than a mouth that rips down. Mark number four, our new life in Christ should be characterized by edifying rather than corrosive speech. As those of us, and I trust we are all, in process. We're not finished yet. He ain't finished with me. He's not finished with you. Who are being conformed into the image of Christ by His very Spirit. Our words ought to be powerful instruments that seek to help and not to harm, to build up and not to tear down. Mind your mouth. The words that Paul actually uses here convey the sense of disgusting, rotting, foul-smelling speech. I think somebody recently in a Sunday school class talked about the gospel burp. That repulsive utterance against someone else. Believers in Jesus aren't supposed to have bad breath. That is to utter words and statements that have the stink of hell all over them. In fact, just a few verses later in Ephesians 5 verse 4, Paul's going to reinforce this virtue of godly speech. Notice what he says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. There ought to be a flavor on our lips of gratitude and thankfulness, not complaining and begrudging. What is the scent that we send out as we speak to one another? I think of James 3, the tongue is a fire. Verse 8 of James 3, no human can tame the tongue. James got it right. But the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians means that we have a new master of our mouth. There is a new leader of our tongue, friend. It is Jesus. 
In fact, he's the one who said in Matthew 12, verses 33 and following, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can't hide what's inside. It will come out. The good person out of, the, out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is not a law of works. It's a law of accountability. Paul says, don't use your words to spew gross things. Instead, use them to spread grace. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Are our words gracious? Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken in just the right occasion is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Paul echoes Ephesians 4, 29 over in Colossians 4 when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. In summary, we could say here that we who call on Christ Jesus as master must allow him to be the Lord over our lips as well as over our lives. We are commanded to turn from harmful, hateful speech to that which is helpful, edifying, and building others up. Now, the theological reason for this one, we kind of sneak in here. It's a big one. I think it applies to each of them, and I'm going to come back to this one because it's such a significant point and maybe misunderstood in a few weeks. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That, I think, is the theological reason behind this particular command. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I'm going to devote an entire sermon on grieving the Holy Spirit in a matter of weeks. So words of application here. Are you careful, friends? And I feel this message. I wrestle with it all week long. You just get it for 40 minutes on a Sunday. Are you careful to let only what is holy, only what is helpful out of your mouth? I have to confess, I've been raging against the Phillies baseball team lately. They deserve it, but it doesn't make it right. Or do you join in with others when they share crude jokes and bad language at work or at school? Young people, when I was in middle school, I had a mouth that would make a Navy man blush. It's bad. That is not the way we should speak and serve Christ. Is your speech characterized by gratitude and grace or by griping and complaining? See Philippians 4, excuse me, Philippians 2, verses 14 to 15. In other words, when we walk away from somebody, do we leave them built up or fed up? Well, mark number five as we close. Our new life in Christ should be characterized by kindness and gentleness. The word here, forgiveness, not by acts of evil deeds. Paul concludes by reminding the church that our entire lives ought to reflect this new kindness, this new righteousness, namely forgiveness. Why? 
Here's the theological reason at the front. Because God in Christ has forgiven us. Colossians 3, 12 and following. But put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We are to let all bitterness, all clamoring, all anger, all wrath and malice be put away from us as God's children. And instead, we are to walk the walk of love as we look like our Father in heaven. God has been so eternally gracious and kind to us. How could we not be to others? So what kind of reputation do you have with those who know you well outside of the church? Are you known as a loud, obnoxious, angry person who's not easy to be around? Or are you known as a kind, peace-loving, gracious person that people actually want to seek out? Does my life or yours exude, candidly, Jesus? Does our life look like His? Well, again, Paul says that our new life in Christ calls us to be imitators of God. Therefore, Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as his beloved children and walk in love. I submit to you chapter 5, verse 1 is reflecting back on chapter 4, verse 25 to verse 32. We are to walk in love, and what does that walk look like? It looks like a very truthful walk. It looks like a self-controlled walk. It looks like a walk that doesn't steal what doesn't belong to us, but rather gives generously to others. It looks like and sounds like the walk that builds up through our words and doesn't rip down or apart. And it's a walk that's quick to forgive. So how are we doing? You know what? I'm so grateful for the grace of Jesus because I don't have a shot at living this kind of life on my own. But because he lives and because he loves me, he loves you. Friend, not only can we do it, we are called to do it. And what the Holy Spirit, what God the Father calls us to do, as others have said, he always enables us to do. Would you bow with me? Our gracious God and Father, we, I, oh Lord, I don't want us to walk out feeling built up. Or sorry, feeling beaten down. I want us to walk out feeling built up by your word. And yet, as we measure our lives by this particular passage, there may be something that is really bent out of shape. Lord, would your gracious and powerful Holy Spirit identify it and then renovate it for us? In me, in us, in anyone, Lord. Help us to be and become the people that are created after the likeness of God himself. Oh, Lord, what might you do in Blandon and Fleetwood and Berks County with a church that lives like that? Lord, we want to be a people who please you. Jesus has pleased you on our behalf in his death. He's given us the Holy Spirit to now help us 
to walk in a manner that is pleasing before you. So we thank you for his grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. And we thank you for the reservoir of righteousness by the Holy Spirit to walk in such a way. And we pass on the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.